than just to be able to see your faces and speak with you. And thank you so much for your prayers in, in my behalf and my wife's behalf. Um, so grateful for what the Lord is doing. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Archimedes, the Greek mathematician, engineer, genius, you know, he, he lived, uh, I guess, about the 3rd century B.C. Um, he invented the lever. And he is famous for saying, give me a place to stand and I will move the world. And, of course, what he meant by that is that he was confident that if he had a place in the cosmos where he could place his fulcrum and a lever long enough to put it against the planet earth and in the right position that even the pressure of his own strength could move the world because of uh, the, the workings and mechanics of the lever. Well, you and I have a place to stand that is a firm place It is beyond this cosmos. It is the revelation of our God in Scripture, and in particular, the message of the gospel. The gospel is our place to stand. And this morning, if you're feeling like the ground beneath us is more quicksand, and how can I stand in such a day, in such a world, in which there are little assurances and uh, little certainties and questions about everything, I encourage you today to put your faith in Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of the universe with his Father and the Holy Spirit, and to know that in him, in the gospel of Christ, is a place to stand. Now what do we mean by that? Well, I want to first say that the gospel is the rule of faith. The gospel is the rule of faith. And and by saying that, I mean that it's a fixed set of beliefs concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like to read the passage that is before us here in chapter 6. We're going to look at 1 Timothy as a whole as well. But this is the passage I'm preaching on. I'm starting with the last clause of verse 2, where he says, teach and urge these things. And many of your translations will already have those words attached to the paragraph in verse 3. He says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. 
And I'm going to stop there at verse 5. I think it's Lord willing that we will get at least that far in looking at this today. So the gospel is the rule of faith. It is the standard. It is the norm by which we measure all other messages in the world. If we were to take the gospel and begin to look at the different parts of it, we would understand that the gospel itself describes reality, that this is God's world, that he created it, that the origin of the universe, the origin of all things is is in the creator, our God, and that he is the Lord, the king of the universe, and that he alone is worthy to be worshipped. And that he is triune, that he is the one God who exists in three persons as the Bible reveals him, in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we would understand this is the origin of all reality. We would understand also that uh, reality only has its meaning as derived from its creator. So he gives us our origin, he created us, he gives us our meaning, our significance, and why we exist comes from him as well. Uh, Our understanding of what is right and wrong, we are created in the image of God, and because of that we are moral agents. We are created with a conscience that enables us to sense right and wrong, though our conscience if it's not trained in the word of God, can mislead us. But nevertheless, the knowledge of right and wrong comes from the law of God. God is the source of the concepts of right and wrong. Right and wrong are not concepts that our society has come up with. They're not social constructs that uh, invented by humans. Right and wrong are based in the unchanging message of God, revelation of who God is. God's character is what determines right and wrong. And then, of course, also, if we recognize the meaning, the the gospel, we also understand that it also speaks of our destiny. That those who trust in the Lord, he has prepared a place for them. And that he is, his son is coming again. And that he's going to establish his kingdom. And that the kingdoms of this world will be wiped out. And that his kingdom will endure forever. So just briefly, you understand that when we believe the gospel, it gives us our understanding of reality. And it is from that that we are able to move forward in life and understand and perceive. It's the lens by which we interpret life. So the gospel is the rule of faith. It is our place to stand. It is a fixed set of beliefs concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is throughout 1 Timothy and the pastoral letters. But if you look at chapter 3... At a moment, for a moment, verses 14 through 16. This passage, 3, 14 through 16, is the center of 1 Timothy, this letter. 
And it is a declaration, a confession of what Christians believe. So Paul, writing to Timothy, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, the church, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The the place where the gospel, the word of God, the truth, the truth is another expression that is a summary of the gospel, okay? And so the church is the proclaimer of the truth, of the gospel in the world, and the protector, the pillar and protector, the buttress, uh, the, the defense of the gospel, the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And by mystery, he means that that which was once hidden, but now has been revealed. And here he tells us the gospel mystery. He says, he, which some translations say God, and I actually prefer Uh, that God was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now many believe this was probably a hymn, an early hymn that Christians sang. And it should not be taken chronologically. He's not trying to give it to us chronologically. But, but rather, it's a poetic expression of the gospel message in Jesus Christ. This is, uh, he first, in the first three lines, he speaks of Christ as God incarnate. In the last three lines, uh, Christ as God glorified. And in fact, if you notice, the first line and the last line, you can kind of see it's not to be taken chronologically, but to be taken as a whole picture of the person and work of Christ, the glory of Christ. And so it says the first line, he was manifested in the flesh. The last line, taken up in glory. Uh, So that's kind of the bookends of this. But let me just touch on each of the lines for a moment because this is a summary of the rule of faith. This is what the church confessed in, in the ancient church. The primitive church confessed this. It is what every true church still confesses. He was manifested in the flesh, that is, God incarnate, which our brother just referred to as he led us in how we should think about the Lord's Supper. He was manifested in the flesh. God, who exists eternally, took on flesh, his incarnation. This includes his sinless life, his miracles and teaching. This is Christ Uh, God incarnate. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. The idea of of vindicated is that he was proven to be true, proven to be correct. The claims that Christ made about himself were all proven to be true as he was resurrected. He was raised from the dead by the Spirit of God. Romans 1 tells us this. He's exalted in his resurrection, and all of his claims are proven to be true. And he is seen by angels. He appears in heaven. 
In the next three lines, you have Christ as God glorified. We find he is proclaimed among the nation. This is the apostolic ministry of the gospel. The apostles went out preaching the gospel. The church was scattered everywhere preaching the gospel. The gospel went out to all nations, still going out to all nations. And so the church is the proclaimer of the message of Jesus Christ. Believed on in the world, saving faith spreads. Churches were planted. Disciples were made. They were baptized. They were taught in all the things that Jesus uh, taught to his disciples, according to the Great Commission. And he was taken up into glory. He was glorified. And we are also told, as he mentions also in, in this book, that Christ is coming again, that we should expect him to return from glory as he comes as the judge of the living and the dead. So this passage, chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, provides us with a, a gospel summary. And as you're reading through this book, sometimes you'll read about the faith, Sometimes you read the truth. Uh, sometimes you read the gospel of glory. Um, in 2 Timothy, the deposit that was given to Timothy. Um, the good doctrine that you have believed. Sound words. All of those are expressions of the, the summary of the gospel. The gospel message. And it is that message that is the rule of faith that guides us in how we should think. Now, this uh, fixed message is also life-changing, a life-changing set of beliefs. If you look in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, you have Paul speaking of how his life was affected by the gospel. And we're looking there at verse 12. Let me just say that Paul was the greatest enemy of Christianity. It w- we would be hard-pressed to know of any opponent of the Christian faith that has ever existed. If there was anyone you didn't want to get in an argument with, anyone who could seek to undermine the Christian faith, it was Paul the Pharisee, Saul the Pharisee. And so he was the gr- greatest persecutor of Christians, and he was the greatest opponent And he hated the name of Jesus Christ. Now, how is it that the person who is most zealous in his hatred for Christianity, most zealous in his proofs against the Christian faith, how is it that he becomes the greatest proponent of Christianity? What happened? Well, the the gospel happened. (laughs) And the gospel is life-changing He met the person of Christ on the road to Damascus. And so we read here, let's just read verse 12. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly, in his unsaved days, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, he doesn't mean that uh, God shows mercy only on those who maybe didn't know what they were doing. But what he's saying here 
is that I was a helpless sinner. I didn't know who Jesus was. I was blind. And God had mercy on me in my misery and my helplessness. That's what he's saying here. It is God is moved with compassion on, for sinners. And he says that's what happened. That's why God did it because of his compassion. And so I received mercy. Verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul, chief of sinners, gives his testimony here because the gospel is life-changing and he wants us to understand that this rule of faith, this fixed set of beliefs, is the very thing that must be proclaimed by the church. Christ is the bread from heaven that feeds starving souls. People are hungry, starving. They are empty. They are thirsty. They don't even know it. They are blind and deaf and and Satan has his way among the unregenerate. And, And the church is responsible to proclaim Jesus Christ He is the bread that satisfies. He he is the water of life. He is the sun. Uh, He he is everything to us. And that is why we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord uh, who died and rose again for our salvation. And the rule of faith is the basis for interpreting scripture and discerning error. In this third element um, under the gospel as the rule of faith, if you look here at 1 Timothy 1 again, he gives us the thesis of the letter in verses 3 through 7. Let's just look here for a moment. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That expression, different doctrine, is going to come up again. We already read it in the passage for today. Not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And then he tells us, the aim of our charge is love. The gospel produces love. Love for God and love for my brothers and sisters. Love for my neighbor. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, holiness, sanctification, and a good conscience. A conscience that's been purified. And a sincere faith, a genuine trust in God. And then he tells us that certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So the gospel becomes, in in its summary of, of the Christian faith, it becomes the lens by which we can understand the rest of the Bible. 
Listen, there are many interpreters, and I have some books on my shelves, of those who are trying to interpret the Bible and reject the gospel. You can never understand the Bible apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're going to understand the Bible, you have to understand it through the lens of Jesus Christ, who was, became human, the Son of God, who became human, and who suffered a substitutionary death, who rose again from the dead for our justification, and who gives life to those who trust in him, and is coming again for judgment. That truth of the gospel is the lens by which you will understand Genesis through Revelation. So the gospel is the the lens, it is the interpretive tool by which you will understand and by which you will see and discern those who are teaching something that is different, something that is apart from, something that is opposed to the gospel message. And so the rule of faith, the gospel is the basis for interpreting scripture and discerning error. The gospel is the driving force in the life of the church. It's our DNA. And then finally, concerning the rule of faith, the gospel always faces opposition. We read that here in verse one, verse 3. Um, charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine. Um, Six certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. If you look at chapter 4, you have a strong paragraph here about the fact that wherever the gospel is, it will be opposed. Wherever the gospel is, it will be opposed. And so chapter 4, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1. Now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith You notice that expression, the faith, that's a reference to the gospel that we believe. By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now notice that the truth The truth, again, is the reference to the gospel. For everything created by God is good. And so forth. So, the gospel always faces opposition. And in fact, as he encourages Timothy, that this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. As he encourages him, he tells him, this is how, Timothy, you can wage a good warfare. The ministry that is Timothy's in the church in Ephesus is one of spiritual warfare because the gospel as it is preached will always have those who will oppose it. Number two, but the gospel exposes false teachers. The gospel is our rule of faith, but it is the exposing principle of false teachers. And so turn back to our passage, 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
He tells Timothy to teach and urge, teach and encourage these things. Uh, Teach is a, a dogmatic word, an authoritative word. You know, I know authority is something's despised in our culture, but he is saying to Timothy, he is saying, Timothy, you have the authority of the word of God. It's not Timothy's authority. It's not the authority of the elders. It is the authority of scripture itself. It is the authority of God speaking through his word. And God's authority binds the conscience. And Timothy is to stand with assurance on the word of God and teach. If if a, a preacher is not studying the word of God, is not speaking the word of God, he cannot say anything with assurance. Every idea... Every idea is a a maybe. Everything is uncertainty. We only have assurance when we have the authority of the word of God. And if you want assurance, to live with assurance, to live with confidence in in what what reality really is and who you are and who made you and how you are to live, if you want to move forward with confidence, you move forward according to the teaching of the word of God. And Timothy has a place of authority as as a pastor teacher in Ephesus. But not only that, a gentler word, he's to urge, he's to encourage. And and these themes are are throughout the pastoral letters, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. These are the pastoral letters. And these words are, are, you can find them everywhere. So personally, individually, Timothy is to be an encourager. Pastors have a responsibility to encourage people in the truth, to counsel people in the truth. And they have a responsibility publicly and privately to teach the truth, to teach the gospel message. And so there's a pastoral responsibility that is given here to Timothy. It is the chief responsibility of pastors. The pressure is constant to give ourselves to administration. It is constant to be taken up with other tasks. But there is grave danger When pastors stop doing what they are called to do, those that have the gift of pastor-teacher need to give themselves to the study of the Word of God and to prayer. Acts chapter 6. And it is by that means that the church is, is healthy and strong. Not necessarily big and successful in the eyes of the world, but healthy and strong because uh, the word of God is being taught. And that's the chief responsibility of pastors and elders. Not to administrate programs. And the message of Paul's letters, and I put this in there, I've had it written in my Bible for years The message of Paul's pastoral letters is to fortify the church against error by teaching sound doctrine and appointing godly leaders capable of defending the faith. That's the responsibility. That's the message. So let's take a look here at verse 3 regarding three marks of a false teacher. Three marks of a false teacher. I'm going to give these to you briefly. Verse 3. Three says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine. So the first characteristic is novelty. Novelty. 
they've come up with something different from what has been preached by the apostles and by the church and has been the standard of what has been confessed in the church through several thousand years. This is, this is what must be taught. And if someone comes up with something different, that's called heterodoxy. What we believe is orthodoxy. Is, orthodoxy means to cut straight. Heterodoxy is these different ideas that someone might come up with. And so uh, novelty, this new interpretation... And then not only that, he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I'll tell you how I take this. First, he says, and does not agree, the, the word, that word is mostly translated arrive. It means to come to something. And when he says that these teachers are teaching something different and that they are not agreeing they are not coming up to they are falling short of the standard of the sound words the health giving healing words the word sound means healthy the the healthy words about i take it to be about the lord jesus christ the message of the gospel the truth of who jesus is and what he has accomplished in our behalf and so they, they uh, are guilty of apostasy because they have fallen short of sound words. They don't measure up to the standard. They don't arrive at the truth that Paul has taught, Timothy is teaching, and that is the test for, by the rule of faith, to qualify or disqualify someone's message. And then finally, impiety. So they teach a different doctrine. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, if they don't agree, if they don't adhere with the sound words about our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. There's another phrase that describes the gospel, the teaching or the doctrine that is in harmony with godliness. John Newton wrote in one of his letters, he said, I really do not teach any doctrine that does not produce godliness. In other words, he actually didn't think there was any such thing as a biblical gospel doctrine that did not also have a practical influence, a life-changing influence on those who heard it. As he describes sound words, and he does in that particular letter, he goes on to give a kind of a paragraph describing the gospel message. He calls, this is, this is what sound words means. And as he does that, he, he, is, he is saying that this situation, that when, when doctrine is taught, when the gospel is taught, it always produces godliness. Godliness is a common word, ten times, I think, in the pastoral letters, and it means devotion to God, love for God, the fear of God. It means piety, to, um, that, that your life reflects conformity to the message of the gospel. That the gospel is not only something that you have believed, but it is something that you now live. 
You've been crucified with Christ. You've been resurrected with Christ. And you are living a new life. It has changed your relationships. And so the gospel produces godliness. The gospel that is in harmony with godliness. And anytime there are teachings which produce impiety, then they are rendered untrue. Because the gospel always produces holiness of life. So those are the three characteristics. You may have noticed that verse 3 began with the word if. And so it's an if-then kind of situation. That's the structure here. If someone has these kinds of characteristics, that is the character of false teachers. And that brings me to, the, to verse 4. We'll read this again in just a moment, but to our third point as well. The gospel protects the health of the church. The gospel protects the health of the church. And I've given you a little uh, drawing here of what I'm calling the gospel fortress. For you church history folks, this is basically the Chalcedonian box, okay, And so this is, uh, for us, the gospel fortress. I like that. And basically, in the first five centuries of the church, the church constantly was assailed by heresies. And as they studied scripture, in fact, you could write in the very center of that box, scripture, and especially the gospels. As they studied scripture and the gospels, they came to see the witness to who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. And it was by their study of the gospel message in scripture and the person and work of Jesus Christ that they were enabled then to defend the faith. And so this box is a fortress, as it were. The church he said, is the pillar and bulwark uh, of the truth. It is, it is a defensive, uh, we proclaim and we also protect the truth. At the very top, you can see that the church believes that Christ is fully God. Fully God. And the reason the church believes that, listen, is because only God can save us. Only God can save us. When people came along teaching that Jesus was not God, the commanders and pillars (coughs) and leaders of God's people stood up against those folks and they explained from the scripture that Jesus is fully God for only God can save us. At the bottom, you notice that it says, that he is fully human, fully human. Because soon some teachers came along and they said, well, you know, um, he only seemed to be human. Or they said uh, he, he, had, um, uh, he had a divine soul, uh, but uh, he didn't have a human mind or soul. In other words, they described Jesus as... Uh, an astronaut, if you will, God inside of a suit, um, but he's not really, the suit is not part of him, it's just something he's wearing. 
And, but the church fathers taught that what is not assumed cannot be healed. And by that, this is what they mean, what is not assumed cannot be healed. What they meant is that sin has corrupted every part of our humanity. It has affected us emotionally, intellectually, physically. Sin has affected us in every way. And in order for us to be fully redeemed, Christ had to become fully human. And so they set another defensive position against this false teaching. And then uh, on the left side of the box, there were some who began to say uh, that, um, that Christ is actually two persons. That he's uh, God and a God person, but he's also a human and a human person. And the church fathers once more took their stand. The one person of Christ is God the Son. And so they taught clearly that he is one person. And then on the right, they taught that Christ has two natures, that the one person of God, uh, of God the Son, who is fully God and fully man, has two natures, that he is both God and man. Because some have begun to teach that Jesus is a hybrid, that he's a mixture of God and man, as something entirely that's not really God, not really man either. And so they confused and mixed the natures of Christ. But the church fathers took their stand. They said, no, he is God and he is man without mixture without confusion, without separation. And so, this gospel fortress I I give to you as an illustration of how the church in the first five centuries fought the battles against the false doctrine that is all around them. And brothers and sisters, the gospel is still assailed in our day. And the old heresies keep on coming back. And not just these, but as well as uh, some new innovations as well uh, on the old heresies as well. But we have to stand within the gospel truth as the church. And we have to speak and proclaim and defend the faith. And that brings me to the, this last part about the inner life of false teachers I think uh, I think I'll I'll stop here. Um, let me just uh, give you um, an illustration. He goes on to say that one of the marks of false teachers is that they are puffed up. Pride goes before a fall, and pride is absolutely connected with the arrogance to think that you have an interpretation that's better than the gospel message that has been preached for years. Um, Our first Sunday at Anniston Bible Church, so your first Sunday you don't want to do anything to cause a problem, but my wife advised me, she said, I have heard that the man that's teaching Sunday school in the adult class has some strange ideas. And so I was going to go to another class, but I I said I would come in here. And sure enough, he began to teach what I would characterize as strange doctrine based on um, 
Jewish mythology, much of what we read here in, in Timothy. And uh, he began to teach that the cross was the mark of the Antichrist, and that's what would be set up in the temple, uh, and uh, all kinds of strange ideas. I stopped him at least twice during that class, and um, it was hard for me to do so. But when the class was over, brothers and sisters came to me, and they said, thank you so much. Thank you so much. We have been so concerned and disturbed about this. And as we begin to talk to this man and to call him to repentance for these, we realize the problem was worse than we even thought. And as I was talking with him later that week, he, he made the statement that there was no one in the church who could really understand the teaching of Scripture the way that he is. I said, you mean none of the elders, none of the deacons, are spiritually mature enough to understand the scriptures the way that you do? And he said, no, they're not. I see, that's, that's that mark of arrogance that feeds the self-centered interpretations, the wrong ideas that causes a person to know nothing and their word will spread as a canker. They will cause division. They will problems will arise as a result of that and it did in in regard to this brother but I'm thankful that as a church we stood strong together to call him to repentance and to love him although I think he proved to be an unbeliever and so as a church we need to keep the main thing as the main thing and the main thing is the gospel message and as we keep Christ above all else that Men are men, but Christ, he is the God-man, he is the Lord, he is the head of the church, and he deserves our worship and exaltation. And we are not about exalting men, we want to exalt Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This is what keeps us safe as we continue to lift Christ into that place of honor and preeminence that he deserves. Will you stand with me? We're going to conclude our service, and then um, if you are not a member, you can be excused, and then we'll ask that uh, members stay for a brief meeting.